going to, um, you know what, actually I'm not going to have you turn to a specific passage. Today we're going to have all the passages on the board because lovingly we are going through a lot of scripture. Yes! 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 All right, I always worry a little bit when I do these scripture heavy messages because look, I know how it is. It's easiest if I just pick out one scripture and I give you a really basic message of a core truth that we all already kind of believe, but now it just gets strengthened. Everyone's like, oh, it's so good. My hope, though, and my desire is that we would become students of the scriptures, amen, that we would be people who are invested into understanding it and studying it and, you know, working with it and all of its difficulty and complexity and all of that. So today, I'm going to be challenging some, you know, traditional emphases of scripture, and I want to give it to you as a theory, as a thesis. Now, if you've been here for a while, you already know that I'm quite comfortable doing that. Okay? But I want to lovingly challenge you, like Paul challenged the church in Berea. Said He challenged them. He said, search the scriptures. right? Search the scriptures and see if what I'm saying is true. Amen? On top of that, this is going to be my second to last message here at BTM. Okay, Next week is going to be my last message. Last week, I spoke on Christian unity. That's one of my big hearts. Okay, This week, I'm going to speak more on the issue of purpose. All right? And what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to leave behind a biblical paradigm that will help you understand the scriptures in a great way and carry on the emphases that I think are very important in scripture. Sound good? All right. As you know, I am very big on this idea that we are created with a purpose. Amen. We have a purpose. We're not just here to suck air and enjoy you know, like video games and eat good food and then have 1.2 kids and die, okay? That is not our purpose. And yet what I find is that many Christians are very confused about what the purpose of life is. And today I want to try and clarify some of those things from a biblical standpoint. We are going to go through a number of scriptures. I want to encourage you, write them down for further study. Because some of these we're going to fly through when really I could preach a whole message on every single one of these passages that we're going through today. Okay, all right. So theory number one. Okay, this is the theory that is popular in society today. We'll call this the world's purpose. What does the world say your purpose is? No clue. Okay, they have no idea of what your purpose is. In fact, the you know the popular theory today is that you get to make your own purpose. <laughs> Whatever you want to be your purpose, that's your purpose, okay? Newsflash, that's another way of saying I have no idea what your purpose is, okay? For this message today, I went to Sam Harris. Any you guys hear of Sam Harris? Any guys heard of him? Wow, not many people. All right. All right, Sam Harris is one of the four horsemen of the new atheism, okay? He's a very eloquent, articulate atheist that's actually very influential today. He has a very popular podcast. He's written many books. He's very respected in the atheist world. So I, I actually like listening to Sam Harris. I think he makes very cogent arguments on, on a large, you know, uh, body of issues, except religion. I think for whatever re reason on religion, man, he's so close-minded. And, well, I checked in with Sam Harris. Sam, his, his basically take on the purpose of life was this. Try not to think about it too much. <laughs> right? His basic purpose, his basic idea is try not to think about it too much. Just enjoy it for what it is. Right? He says if you're worried about the meaning of life and you can't figure it out and so you feel worse about yourself, well, you're missing, you're, you're failing to connect with the purpose of life, which is really, in his 
estimation just to enjoy life. You don't need to understand what it's really about. You know, it's like you enjoy coffee, mmm, tastes good. There you go. There's life. Enjoy it for all it's worth. Something like that. All right. I want to say that this is intellectual garbage. All right. This is intellectual garbage. This idea, try not to think about it. This is the intellectual equivalent of, hey, let's stick our fingers in our ears and say, la, 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 I don't want to think about this issue because it's scary. Why? Because you might be missing your purpose. That's why it's scary. You might be missing the whole thing. And if that's a real fear and a concern, then, hey, guess what? It's because it's so important. It's something that everyone is intrinsically built to value and need to have an understanding. The truth is, if there is no God, there is no greater purpose. It doesn't exist. It can't exist, which is why we get this philosophy, this idea that we as humans are the highest order of being, so we get to just create whatever purpose that we want and whatever brings your life fulfillment, hey, just try and do more of that. Well, I love you want to say this. I think that whole paradigm is intellectually bankrupt. I think it has no merit at all. I think it, it, it guts humanity of its very, of its most basic foundational needs and values, right? And that's why it lends itself to annihilism. You can't, you can't live this life without purpose. You can't live this life without a sense of moral justice. But without a purpose, there is nothing to say that something is right or wrong. Everything is relative. You can do whatever you want at the core of it. Now, we can come up with ideas that are, you know, fashionable in society, like morally fashionable ideas, right? Like, we don't like it when you hit other people, right? People don't like to be hit, so we, you shouldn't hit other people, right? And that's kind of the way morality works in society today. If a lot of people don't like something, well, then it's not right. How do we determine right or wrong? Well, whoever gets the most upset about it. That's how it works in our society today. But what we've seen throughout history is that you have no absolute objective standard of right and wrong. Well, whoever is the most powerful gets to decide what's right and wrong. And that's what we've seen all throughout history. And the greatest abuses of history have happened because there's no moral compass in the society. When Hitler was coming to power, there should have been a strong, bold church there to say, no way, this guy is wrong. They were doing that in England and in America where there was a vibrant church, but most of the churches in Germany were fairly silent. Many even tried to explain Nazism through a biblical lens and all this kind of stuff. They failed the test of the hour. And I want to say it's because they gave in to this kind of thinking that is so popular in America today. I want to say this, brothers and sisters. If you as a Christian are insecure about your purpose in Christ, how are you going to be the hope for all the people that are lacking purpose? You become influenceable. People say, oh my gosh, I can't believe you live for Jesus. I can't believe you live for nothing. Where's that argument? I'm serious. Where's the bold Christian argument on the university campuses? It's silenced. Because we're scared, we're intimidated by their non-answer. They don't have an answer. We have a great answer. We have been created in the likeness of God, and I'm going to go into the depths of it, but look, we should not be intimidated by the non-answer that the world offers. This is a huge hole in the intellectualism that's fashionable in our age, and we should be speaking forcefully into it 
I think this is one of the most important messages that the church has. No, we do have a purpose. Our lives do have a meaning. But to the degree that you're not living in your fulfilled meaning, you won't be able to preach that to others in a way that's compelling. One of the most compelling things is to have a life that's filled with purpose and meaning. And it's obvious to the people around you. I want to lovingly say, that's really what we should be doing. But there's a problem. In the church, we're confused about what the purpose of life is. Okay? Many Christians would argue it's something like this, to enjoy God. That's the purpose of life, to enjoy him. In fact, I'm going to actually say that I think this is the argument for most Christians, even though most Christians would not articulate it like that. Most Christians, if you ask them what the purpose of life is, relatively few are going to say to enjoy God. And yet, by the way that we live and the way that we interpret the Bible, this one is actually very, very popular. What's the purpose of life? To believe in Jesus and go to heaven. And what's your paradigm of heaven? You know, it's just a place where you get to be in bliss forever, right? And you're just happy forever. And the purpose of your life is to make sure you get there. That's the popular Christian paradigm. And I want to say, I think that that paradigm, even though it has some truth to it, it is mostly wrong. It is mostly wrong. It has no explanation for suffering. Why does God allow suffering? Why does he allow evil? Why is life so hard? It has no explanatory power for any of that. And that's why so many Christians struggle with this idea of God. Why do you let some people go to hell? Why do you, why do you let life be so hard? Why is there evil? When your paradigm of the purpose of life is just to enjoy God, you can't understand why God allows things that are unenjoyable. So I want to lovingly say this. This is not a correct understanding of what the Bible says is the purpose of life. Is it part of it? Absolutely, it's part of it. But it's the minor part of it. Okay? Enjoying life is a byproduct of doing your true purpose well. Okay? If you do your true purpose well, you're going to enjoy life. But if you don't do your true purpose well, you're not going to enjoy life. It's a byproduct. It's not the main thing. So what do some other people say? Some other Christians say the purpose of life, I love this one, right, is to glorify God. Right? Oh, that sounds good. Right? But then follow up, okay, what does that mean? What does it mean to glorify God? And that's when you get into all the weeds, right? That's when it starts getting really hairy. Well, you know it's to lift him up. It's to make his name great. <laughs> right? That's where we get into all the religious language that shows that we don't really know what we're talking about. All right? What does it mean to glorify God? Especially because the people that use that type of language the most, they tend to have a paradigm that everything glorifies God. Right? If you read Romans 9 a certain way, you've got to believe that God sending people to hell glorifies him. Right? That everything that happens, the rape of children, this somehow, in a way that we don't understand, it somehow glorifies God. Because God is meticulously determining. He has ordained every little thing that happens in the earth. That's why everything has a purpose, right? Everything is, happens for a reason. Newsflash, wrong, okay? Wrong. No, that is not what the scriptures say, in my opinion, okay? And I'm going to go into my opinion a lot more in this message. But that's a big problem because a lot of people think, well, to glorify God just means, you know, whatever happens is going to glorify him, and I'm going to glorify him with my life. And what it does is it leads to a complete divorce of reality, right? You're just living in your own world. You're totally divorced from the purpose of life. You just need some nebulous thing. 
glorify God, right? How do I do that? I try and evangelize a little bit more, right? I try and spend a little bit more time in worship than I otherwise would. Then I'm glorifying God with my life, except I've been predestined to do all of those things. So even if I didn't do it, I would, I would be predestined to do that. And everything is predestined to glorify God, and he's glorified no matter what we do. So what does that mean? It means nothing, okay? It's intellectual garbage again. Woo. Sorry. But that's the reality, all right? I, I lovingly say this. The Bible should be pretty logical. It really should be. In the areas where we cannot give logical explanations for what the Bible talks about, I think it's safe to say there's a deficiency in our theology, all right? I would love to give you an explanation from the Bible that I think better fits what the purpose of life is really all about. Is that okay? Can I do that? All right, I'm going to give you a couple key concepts that we're going to dig into in the scriptures, but these things are widely misunderstood. All right, so I'm going to put it something like this. The simple version of what is the purpose of humanity, okay, is to rule in God's name. Okay, that is the simple thesis I'm offering today. The purpose of humanity is to rule in his name. The original mandate that's given to Adam, right, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and rule over it. This is the mandate that's given to Adam that he is to populate the earth and he is to rule, his family is to rule over the earth. I would like to say that that original plan for mankind has never changed. That's always been the plan. That is still the plan. When Adam fell, he forfeited his rulership. When we worshiped idols as people groups, we forfeited our rulership. But through Christ, we have been adopted for the purpose of rulership. Let me say that again. Through Christ... We have been adopted into God's family for the purpose of rulership. All right, we ready to dig into the scriptures? Amen. Ephesians 1. All right, it says this. God decided in advance to adopt us into his own family by bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. He purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. God has now revealed to us his mysterious will regarding Christ, which is to fulfill his own good plan. And this is the plan. I love New Living Translation because they just make really plain statements like this, right? What's the plan? This is the plan. At the right time, he will bring everything together under the authority of Christ, everything in heaven and on earth. Furthermore, because we are united with Christ, we have received an inheritance from God, for he chose us in advance, and he makes everything work out according to his plan. All right. Now, obviously, I can preach an entire sermon on this, on why this is not Calvinist, okay? I'm not going to do that for the sake of time. Leave the scripture up, okay? What I want to do is I want to give us an understanding of how adoption in the Bible is always related to inheritance, okay? Adoption is always related to inheritance. Now, we think of adoption like this. I see a little orphan kid. I go, oh, little orphan, right? I go, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save the orphan kid, right? I'm going to bring him into my family because otherwise he had no hope. 
He was going to grow up poor, and I just loved him so much that I went and I adopted him, okay? That is the modern way that adoption works, and that's how we tend to think of it, right? Father saw us. We're dead in our sins. He went, oh, right? And he sent his son to go and adopt us into his family, and now we are his little babies, right? We are his, his adorable little babies, and he loves to cuddle us, right? And he loves to kiss us and tell us how, tell us how much he loves us, right? I want to lovingly say, that is not the biblical concept of adoption, all right? Because adoption in ancient times worked differently than adoption does today, okay? In ancient times, adoption was not for the poor. Adoption was for the rich and the powerful, all right? And the idea here is in Roman society, you would have this, this deal where if you were of a noble family of the Roman Empire and you had two sons, there was a problem, okay? The problem was that the eldest son would receive the inheritance. He would receive your name, your lands, your titles, right, the power. Everything would go down to the eldest son. And a lot of times the younger son would not like that very much, right? So what did you do? You adopted out the younger son. Why did you do that? Because in other families, they only had two girls, right? And when they only have two girls, there is no heir. So what has to happen? You adopt the son of another noble family to become the heir of your name and your titles and your power and your land. Am I making sense? This is how ancient adoption works. I want to suggest to you, this is the model of adoption that Paul is talking about predominantly, all right, in the scriptures. Which is why what you're going to see every single time adoption is mentioned in the New Testament, inheritance is also mentioned. Okay? The idea, the concept of adoption is intrinsically connected. It's intertwined with the idea of inheritance. All right? Now, does it also carry some connotations of like, you know, the modern concept of adoption? Oh, I love you so much. I do my family. Yes, I think it does. I think that's part of this too. Okay? But I don't think that's the main part. And the problem is because the church has read it like that's the main part, this is one of the reasons, that's one of the reasons we've adopted this idea that our purpose is just to be enjoyed by God and to enjoy him and live with him forever in heavenly bliss, sitting on clouds, singing songs, right? And that is what it's all about. No, it's not, okay? The idea is inheritance, all right? In this passage, this is what we see. There is an inheritance that is spoken of in Scripture all the time. In fact, it is one of the key themes of Scripture. Abraham is longing for an heir. Abraham is a rich and powerful man with many lands, right? Or excuse me, with many servants and many cattle and all this kind of stuff. But he has no heir to pass it down to. So he's asking God for an heir. And what happens? Finally, God gives him an heir. And he says, now sacrifice the heir. <laughs> right. And what happens? Abraham has to trust God with his heir. Okay? This is a theme. This is a strong theme. Right. He trusts God. He sacrifices his son Isaac. He offers him for sacrifice. Right. And what happens? God says, because you were faithful to me in this, right, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. What happens? Abraham becomes the inheritor of the entire earth. Okay, are we seeing a theme? Who is the original inheritor of the entire earth? It was Adam. Right? Adam forfeited his inheritance. And what happens is Abraham somehow steps into this destiny. 
father of many nations. Okay? This idea of inheritance is really strongly tied in the Bible. But this is hard for us to think about. Why? Because what exactly is being, what exact, how does inheritance work in this context? Because our understanding is that you have God the Father, right? And the Father rules over all the nations, and every little thing that he wants done, he just snaps his finger and whoop, it just magically happens, right? And what that's that's it. That's how life works. I want to let me say, no, that's not how life works. Okay? We covered a couple weeks ago this idea that God rules through a divine council. And I know some of you guys are like, this is weird. Never heard this before. Hopefully, in the time since then, you had, an, you had an opportunity to study those passages, to watch some Bible project videos, right, maybe to read some articles, and now maybe the idea is not so foreign, you're like, okay, I'm not in a cult, praise God, all right, you are not in a cult, thank Jesus, all right, but what we do see in the scriptures is that the way God rules is through a council, all right, through divine counsel, other princes of heaven, right, rulers in heavenly places. This is what the New Testament is making reference to all the time with this idea of powers, okay? And what happened was Jesus was the son, the unique, uncreated son that was always destined to take on the full authority of the Father, and he took it after the cross. He's raised to the right hand of God. He receives his great inheritance. What is the inheritance? All heaven and earth now belong to the Son. And what happens to us? We become united with the Son through faith, and we become co-heirs of the entire inheritance. All right, now let me pause here, because I can already tell some of you guys are like, oh my gosh, this is just, what are we talking about here? All I know is Jesus loves me. I lovingly challenge you, wrestle with the Scriptures. Wrestle with the scriptures, okay? You, need, you must wrestle with them to understand them well. This idea of inheritance is all over the New Testament. We see it right here, right? In Ephesians 1, what happens? God plans for humanity in advance, right? He he's planned to adopt us into his family so that we share in the inheritance of the Son to rule over all of heaven and earth together. This is the great plan from the beginning. Lest you think it's only in Ephesians 1, I'm going to point out a number of other passages here. Galatians 4 says this, Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. You're inheriting something here. And this is the purpose. You're not adopted into God's family to just enjoy God. Is that an important part? Yes. You guys know I talk a lot about enjoying God. All right. But if that's your focus, you're going to miss the purpose that God has called us to. And I'll tell you, if you miss that purpose, it's going to get hairy for you. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says this. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Pause. Already, this is already mysterious language. Get the visual image. All right? Christ is seated on a throne in heaven. And somehow, 
Paul sees us being inside Christ. We're there with him. We're joined with him in spiritual union. That's why we're sitting as a body in heavenly places with Christ. We're sharing his authority. Is this making sense? In order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Brothers and sisters, all of this is talking about a purpose. It's the purpose. It's not just to be. To be is part of it, but it's to be so that you can do. And I want to lovingly say this because the church has not understood the do part really well, we haven't understood the be part really well. You got to understand both biblically or you won't understand the purpose of this age. Now, one of the lies that goes out there that's really popular in the church, again, this paradigm, oh, we're just created to enjoy God, and God enjoys us, and that's all there is to life, okay? And along with that paradigm comes this idea, God loves all Christians exactly the same, right? 100% the same. The way this paradigm goes is we're all broken, so all of us, when we receive Christ, what happens? We get all of Christ's goodness and his righteousness. It all comes on us. And so when God the Father looks at us, what does he see? He doesn't see you. He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your flaws. He sees Christ's perfect righteousness when he looks at you. Newsflash. Not true. He sees you. Okay? He knows about your sin. I've said this before. Okay? God is not selectively, you know, he doesn't have selective Alzheimer's. Right? Oh, my gosh, I forgot you did that thing, right, until you told me. No, of course he knows. All right? And what you're going to see is that God's love differs for different people. <gasps> oh, shoot, some people are feeling awful insecure all of a sudden. Okay? No, no, no. This is the truth, okay? Those who live in their purpose are more loved by the Father. Mm. Oh, shoot. Controversial. Okay. Those who do not live in their purpose are less loved by the Father. Frankly, this should be obvious to anybody who reads Scripture. Okay. It is only a, a lot, uh, hundreds of years of bad theology that have confused this issue. Okay. I'm going to point out a number of passages here. Okay. In Numbers 12, Miriam and Aaron, they they challenge Moses, and they go, we're prophets too, and they step up and they challenge Moses, and this is what God does when they challenge Moses. Numbers 12, then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud. He stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned Arian and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams, but this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him, I speak face to face clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Okay. I want you to get this paradigm. What's happening? Aaron and Miriam do not understand. They don't realize the great favor that Moses has on his life. They don't understand how God has put his favor on Moses. 
And because of that, they get presumptuous. They think, why should Moses be in charge? Why can't I be in charge? And what happens? God comes down and pones them. All right? He strikes them with leprosy, and he says, my servant Moses prays for you, then I'll heal you. Dang. Yeah, he lets them have it. David says this in Psalms chapter 5. By the way, if you read almost any of the Psalms, you are going to see this dynamic all over the place. He says this, surely, Lord, you bless the righteous. You surround them with your favors with the shield. What do we see? The righteous, he surrounds them with favor because they live righteously. Psalm 86 says, guard my life, for I am faithful to you. Save your servant who trusts in you. What's happening? The psalmist is saying, God, I've lived faithfully before you. Therefore, I am standing to call on you and ask you for your favor. I need your salvation in my time of need. Why? Because in my righteousness... I have lived for you. The reason why this is so hard for modern day Christians to understand, because we have bought into a theology that says that all of us are completely unrighteous before Christ and completely righteous after Christ. I want to lovingly say, this is not biblical, all right? It is not biblical. I'm challenging you here. There's a lot of theological, you know, exploration we'd have to do to unpack this. I want to challenge you, though, to study the scriptures on this question, and what you will see is that it is impossible for this paradigm to exist in light of all that the scriptures say about this. Jesus, in John 8, says this, the one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases him. What is he saying? Jesus is saying, the Father would never abandon me. Why? Because I always do the things that please him. What's he talking about? I have great favor on my life. And because of that, I'm confident that he will not abandon me. Right? These are just a, this is just a smattering. The reality is this is all over the Bible. When an angel comes to Daniel, he says, you who are highly favored. Right? We see this type of language all over the Bible, this idea that God favors some more than others. Okay? Now, some people on the, on the other side would say, no, but the Bible also says that God does not have favorites. That's true. The problem is the context means something totally different than what you're saying by that statement. Okay, that statement is in Romans chapter 2. It's when Paul is saying that God has not chosen the Israelites and only shown favor to the Israelites. No, he's saying God shows favor to whoever shows trust in him. What you reap, you will sow. And so you can't trust in this idea that God favors me and therefore I can sin and do things that are evil and God will still favor me exactly the same. That's the whole point. His whole point in saying that God doesn't have favorites is to say that God gives his favor to those who are faithful. This should be obvious. Okay, this is all over the scriptures and yet somehow we have arrived in this place in modern Christianity where every Christian is under the assumption that because they know Jesus, they have the exact same amount of favor as everybody else. And I want to lovingly say this. This has resulted in so much confusion on this issue. Christians are always wondering, is God mad at me? Is he upset with me? Is he disappointed with me? I don't know because theologically, I, I'm, I'm supposed to be, you know, the righteousness of Christ. But I don't feel like it. <laughs> right? But something feels wrong when I sin. And I want to say, yes, 
Yes, it should feel that way. All right? You should feel like when you practice sin, you're in mortal danger. In fact, that's exactly what the scriptures say. That your works, God is judging your works. The problem with the church is we understood when Paul says you're not saved by works to mean you're not saved by righteous deeds. But can I lovingly say that's not what Paul means. Okay, we've talked about this before. When Paul talks about how we're not saved by works, he's referring to works of the law, meaning that we're not saved because we're Jewish. But the idea is that our trust in Christ is manifested by works And so are we saved by our works that show that we trust Christ? That's absolutely what saves us. That should be clear as a bell. If you have somebody who says, I'm a Christian, and they practice sin, let me tell you what that person is, a hypocrite. That's what Scripture says. That person who says, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, and this person practices sin. This person is sleeping with their boyfriend or girlfriend. This person is stealing from all the people around them, feels no conviction on, no remorse, no true repentance. I tell you, that person is a hypocrite and a liar. That's what Scripture says about them. Their fa- your faith has to be manifest in your actions. And what that also means is that the more faithful you are, the greater favor is on your life from the Lord. This, again, should be fairly obvious. James says the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. What's the implication? The prayer of an unrighteous person is not powerful and effective. We have this entire theology of how all you need to do is really believe, right? We've dumbed down faith. That's what faith is. Just really believe, right? And so you're, you're praying something. You're trying really hard. Really believe this time, right? Oh, healing. Rise from the dead. Really believing it this time. That's not what the scriptures mean by faith, okay? Faith is the lifestyle of trust that you have, and it results in favor being over your life. Why does God miraculously provide for some people and not for others? They have more faith in that area. God responds to faith. Again, I think this should be obvious, but it's not obvious to the body. That's why people don't understand the great need that they have to grow. Oh, that we would be filled with a longing to grow. We should be seeking the Lord all the time. God, cause me to grow. Let me grow in my purpose. Why? Because it's everything in this life. The whole purpose of this life is to test and to train you for rulership. That's all this thing is. And if you don't understand that, every difficulty, every hardship... You feel like, why, God? Why did you allow this? And I'll tell you why. So that you would grow. That's why we rejoice in our trials, knowing that our trials produce perseverance, our perseverance character, and our character hope. And hope does not disappoint because he's poured out his spirit into our hearts. There's the idea that we know that he's going to raise us from the dead because we have the spirit of God, because we have the encounter where the spirit baptized us and met us. That's the confidence that we have that Jesus will raise us from the dead when we die. Am I making sense? Church, there's such a need for a radical transformation in the body. And I believe that a lot of it is going to come from really understanding the way that the scriptures fit together properly.
the way that they fit together properly. Abandon the idea that all I need to do is believe this set of facts about Jesus. Come on. That's not faith. Scripture, Paul says even demons believe those set of facts about Jesus. You don't get to heaven by believing a set of facts. You get to heaven by having a living trust in a Savior and a King who's King of your life. And the greater your trust, the greater your authority in this kingdom. That's how this works. And the greater your authority in this kingdom, the greater hardship and persecution you tend to face because you can overcome it. And as you overcome the hardships and the persecution, you earn for yourselves great reward in the age to come. That is how this works. Okay. One thing I said earlier, people don't understand why does God send people to hell? I want to lovingly say this. This is a, this is a harsh but a, a necessary truth. Why does God send people to hell? Because if you abandon your purpose, you're good for nothing. You're created for a reason, for a purpose. We have an entire culture of people who don't care what their purpose is. They don't care. They don't want to investigate. Can I tell you why? Because they're arrogant. That's why. That's what scripture warns about. That when you get rich, you say, I have need of nothing. I don't need God. I have Netflix. I don't need God. I have social media. I have all the food I could want to eat. Yeah, you don't need God right now. You don't need to know your purpose because things are so good in your life. And scripture warns us again and again. But if you go with that mentality, then you will forfeit the eternal life that you were designed to have. Because we have a great purpose in the age to come. But church time to get serious with our faith. If we abandon our purpose, Scripture says we're good for nothing. Matthew 5 puts it like this. You're the salt of the earth, speaking of believers. But if the salt loses its saltiness, if the church fails to be the salt that it's called to be, the purpose that it has, what happens? How can it be made salty again? Well, that's hopeful. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. What is this saying? It's saying if the church fails to be the preserver of the culture, then what happens? Then the culture, the society is judged with a great judgment, and that salt is thrown out. That's the believers, okay, who did not preserve the culture. And what happens? The salt is made salty again, okay? A lot of times, this is what happens. We don't care to understand the things of God because life is so good. Okay? But when things get really bad, that's all of a sudden when people develop humility. Right? All of a sudden when things get really bad, people start to develop humility and cry out to the Lord. Right? I want to say, church, you don't ha- we don't have to wait till then. <laughs> we don't have to wait till it gets really bad. We can do it now. But I say this, the church has become so complacent in these times. And, I, and it's because we're addicted to the things of the world. We don't know how to prioritize the things of God. It's because we're addicted to all of it. We're addicted to the comfort. Look, I'm reading a book with my um, discipleship group on um, missionary in India. 
He's talking about all the, the believers, right, who are in torture camps, right, in China and in North Korea and Iran. Brothers and sisters, those are the ones who are going to be greatly rewarded. We cannot in our arrogance think that it's going to be us when we live lives of such great leisure and ease. If we had a truly biblical paradigm, we would be so eager that God would call us to true devotion. Look, I want to say this. This was honestly my mentality when I was in college. I was like, God, I got to get out of America. It's like, oh God, I'm going to be a missionary to the Middle East. That was my plan. I studied Arab for two semesters because I refuse to stay here in America. No way. I know what America does. It robs your passion. You get so complacent because everything is so good here. And you get tempted to stick your fingers in there in your ears and say, who cares about purpose? And yet everything scripture is telling us is that we're in danger here. And this is the word to the American church, okay? Wake up in this hour. Wake up. Wake up. We have got to wake the church up. We are going through the greatest oppression in the history of the world. And most of the church is silent on it right now. Every pastor should be speaking out on abortion and not just speaking out, should be leading demonstrations. We should have every campus should be filled with pastors and campus fellowship leaders crying out against abortion. And that's just one issue. I think it's maybe the most important issue of our time. That's just one issue. But what we have instead is we have a silent, complacent, cowardly church. And a lot of that is because we don't understand the scriptures very well. We haven't wrestled with them in a serious way. I'm shocked. I'm shocked sometimes, guys. I'm serious. I'm shocked when my kids know Bible stories and you guys don't know them. It's shocking to me. They just watch cartoons. They're Bible cartoons. How can we as believers in this age who say that I'm living, I'm prioritizing the kingdom in my life? Can we be honest? Honestly, we're not. Honestly, we're not. I'm saying this not just in the spirit of accusation. I should be so much more mature than I am as well. Honestly, we're not prioritizing the kingdom in a serious way. Honestly, we have a situation where our students, you guys, you guys study secular materials for, I don't know how long you study, 20 hours a week maybe? Some of you guys are like, 10 hours a week, I don't know, whatever. But where, where's, where's this serious study of Scripture? I mean this honestly. I've lovingly called you guys. Challenge me. I dare you challenge me. I love it. I'm serious because I want to grow too. I love being challenged by people that love the Scriptures and are freaking dogmatic. Okay? This way you can get so closed-minded that you can't even engage in a productive conversation with somebody on theology. Okay? I'm not saying go there. But I'm saying... You should, be, you should love the scripture such that you can engage in real debate. You should be able to debate people in the Bible. But we're addicted to the things of this world. 
And I lovingly say this, it must change in this generation. Because what we're doing is we're losing so many, we're losing so many Christians. People who put their faith in Jesus when they're young, when they're in high school, and when they're in junior high. So many kids right here in the Korean church, they put their faith in Jesus. They get baptized when they're 13 or 14 years old. And it's not fake. They're not faking it. They have a real desire to follow him. But they never grow mature. Because we do VBSs where we just tell them Jesus is fun. I'm going to get flack for that one. Jesus is not supposed to be fun. Okay? Is it fun sometimes? Yeah. But look, let's be blunt. It could be way funner. Okay? If you're not in church, you can have way more fun. The place for fun is not here, okay? I tell my kids almost every week, because almost every week they go, I don't want to go to church. And I tell them, why do we go to church? They look at me and they're, we don't go to church so you can have a good time. We go to church because he is worthy of our worship. We owe him. That's the idea. We owe him worship. We owe him our lives. But let's be honest, church, we're not giving him our lives. Hear me. The condemnation, I'm not saying it in the sense that I know exactly how you should live every moment of every day. I'm saying it as a leader in the Western church that we are so immature this hour. And it's because we're not, we're, we're deceived a lot of times. We're singing songs about Jesus, I would do anything for you. No, you would not. I mean... Look, at least when you sing words like that, have the humility. Say, I, I would not, but I want to be willing, right? I think you can honestly sing those songs with that heart, okay? Church, our purpose in this life is to tr be trained as rulers. Here's what I say to this. You've got to get rid of all of your pride. Let me tell you, pride is the number one thing that will keep you from growing in the kingdom. It's the number one thing. It's the number one thing that reads the Bible, and it has this response, no way. Or it has this response, I don't really care. Okay? When we approach the scriptures with either of those mentalities, it's because of our own pride. We don't feel like we really need it. I say God would not have taken such trouble to give us this book if we didn't really need it. We really need this thing. We really need to understand it. We have to wrestle with it. And I say lovingly, wrestle with the scriptures and challenge them. I, I give you permission to challenge theology. I would love to be challenged in the right spirit. Okay. Not the wrong spirit, please. Okay. The right spirit, I would love to be challenged. I think that's healthy in the church. I think there's no reason why we should have so many bad ideas being taught at Talbot. Hundreds of years they're teaching this theology. Where are the people who are challenging them? I'm serious. I challenged my seminary professors. I told one of my professors, you are 100% wrong on this issue. I convinced half the class that she was wrong. Because she was wrong. 
I read, uh, I, I took, herm, you know what hermeneutics is? Free study, it's the, it's the, you know, the art of interpreting the Bible, okay? I wrote my main paper on why that, that freaking book, our, our major textbook, was garbage, okay? Now, to, you know, I guess to my professor's credit, he loved my paper so much he made me read it in front of the entire class. Thank God. He could have failed me, right? Like, he had that prerogative. But I say this honestly. How can, how can this type of theology, how can we have a theology that says that everyone's equally favored in the kingdom? How do you get that theology? But it's all over the church. I hear that all the time. Where do we get some of this theology that has become so popular and ingrained in our psyche? How can we boast of it when it yields a church that's so complacent that won't speak out? How can you have theology where you're basically cutting out half the Bible? I'm serious. People don't know why you have to study the Old Testament. Can I tell you in a nutshell? It's the prototype, right? Israel is the prototype. The same thing that Israel is going through in the scriptures, we're going through in America today. The parallels should be obvious. And yet when you stand up and speak as a prophetic voice that we need to turn from our sin, lest God bring judgment, you know what mostly you get? You get a lot of, that's not the way it works anymore. Everything changed with Christ. There's no more judgment of nations. Except that Christ himself talked about judgment of nations. He warned Israel that the temple would be destroyed. He warned them that it would be worse for them than for Sodom and Gomorrah. He warned them of judgment, and judgment is exactly what came. I say this, church, where, where's the awareness of judgment in our church culture? Where's the urgency today? There is no urgency in our fellowships. I remember what it's like to be in a campus fellowship. No urgency. It's a lot of bored Christians trying to stop looking at pornography. It's the scriptures that talk about these things. It's the scriptures that warn us that if we're spiritually sleeping, our, our nations will come under judgment. It's the scriptures that are warning us, don't miss out on your purpose. Don't put it in second place. Don't take faith less than seriously. And yet we have leaders in our church who have discouraged me from telling you guys to follow God with all your hearts. When I say if God calls you to be a missionary, you go and be a missionary. You know, I got rebuked for that one time. I rebuked him back. Unbelievable. But I say this is where we are today. And hear me, I'm sharing my heart with you, not because I hate our church. I love our church. I think our church is one of the most healthy churches around. Okay. That doesn't say a lot for the church. It doesn't say a lot for the church. I've been wrestling with this for years. This, this lack of peace in my spirit about where we're at. Not because I hate the church. It's precisely the opposite. I love the church. I can't wait until it grows into maturity. I can't wait till we see miracles in every, every time that we gather. I can't wait till we have a, a worship anointing 
where everybody feels the presence of God. I can't wait till we have services where unbelievers come in and we prophesy the secrets of their heart and they exclaim, surely God is among you. I can't wait till we have proper governorship in the church where we have a body of elders holding the biblical standards. I can't wait till we have theology that makes logical sense. I can't wait till we have every member of the church operating in the fullness of their purpose and of their giftings. I can't wait for all these things to happen. And I say, look, I'm out of here in two weeks. Who will carry the torch? Not with a spirit of hypercriticism. Not because you resent the weaknesses in the people around you. But because you have a holy burden and a love that the church would be mature. That you have a holy burden. God, I want to be mature. Can I tell you? I think it's a good thing when students get frustrated with the church. The frustration in itself is not a bad thing. It's what we do with the frustration that matters. Okay? When I was when I was in college, I was so frustrated with my fellowship. I think that's a good thing. That's the longing, that's the leadership inside of you. You should be frustrated at the weaknesses in the body. And you should be frustrated at the weaknesses in yourself. What else is going to get you to fast? What else is going to get you on your knees in the place of prayer? It's the frustration. Some people are like, oh, man, everything's great. I love everything. I don't know what this guy's problem is, right? That's because there's no longing in your heart. I think if there's a longing, a godly burden in our hearts, the frustration. The question is, what do you do with the frustration? Here's what I'd say. Channel it into prayer. Channel it to the Lord. Cry out to the Lord. Pour out your heart to him. Learn to do that well. And then follow his leadership. Whatever he calls you to do, learn to do it. But here's what you don't do. Do not become complacent. If you let yourself become complacent, it's not the fault of your pastor. It's not the fault of your house church leader. It's not anybody's fault. It's your fault. Don't blame anybody else for your apathy and your complacency. Because you know what? You can get up right now. You can move to India. All right? And there is a pretty awesome church I could tell you about over there. Where they're getting persecuted all the time. Okay? And guess what? You could do that anytime. You can move to Africa and go join Heidi Baker's ministry. Okay? You can move wherever you want to. There's lots of stuff going around. Okay? What you can't do is point the finger and say it's all this person's fault. No, no, no. There's got to be something inside of you. And look, if you feel like there are weaknesses at, at your church, you've got to at least try to be the agent of change. You've got to at least try. One of the great faults in the Korean church is we expect our leaders to do everything for us. Hey, newsflash, your leaders have major problems. Your leaders have major flaws. I'm speaking about myself, okay? Look, our ministry is not that evangelistic right now. It's my fault. It was way more evangelistic when Nick was here. 
That's my fault. That's my weakness as a leader. But I can't blame other people. And I lovingly say this. You have to take responsibility for your own faith. Take responsibility for it. If you believe that God can really lead you in your life, then you won't be a complainer. Look, complaining means that you believe you're powerless. That's what complaining is. When you believe that you're powerless, like you can't do anything about it, all you do is whine. A little whining, I understand. I whine sometimes. But if it never gets turned into productive action, then there's no growth. I lovingly say this. Turn it into productive action. Okay? Even if nobody else is praying, you determine that you're going to pray. Even if nobody else is evangelizing, you determine, I'm going to evangelize. If nobody else is seeking the Lord and wrestling with scripture, you determine, I'm going to seek the Lord and wrestle with the scriptures. You put your trust in God. I believe God is raising up a wineskin that is going to replace the current wineskin of the church. I mentioned this last week. My friend mentioned to me that God had given Mike Bickle a word that in one generation was going to change the face of Christianity. And when I heard that word, I was shocked in my heart because I've been praying that prayer for over 10 years that God would change the face of Christianity in one generation. I think that's exactly what's coming. I think God is releasing a wineskin on the body that is going to produce such an abundance of overflowing fruit. We're going to have such incredibly anointed worshipers. We're going to have incredibly anointed preachers. Our intercessors are going to be amazing. It, the, whole, the whole expression of the church is going to change. We're not going to be impressed with the guys on the stage. We're going to be impressed with the people who are doing the ministry in the congregation. We're going to be impressed how amazing they are when they're living in the fullness of their purpose. I believe this is what is coming upon the body in a great way. And so I'm really encouraged and I'm excited. But I say this, this is the nature of it. It's frustration that births forth the purposes of God. It's frustration that births forth the purposes of God. Okay. Jesus is going to return when there is a bride that is so frustrated and says, come, Lord Jesus, come. Right. That cry of frustration is the thing that releases the Lord, and he's going to come again for, his, for the ones who have been waiting for him, longing for his coming. And I say in the same way, revival in this generation is going to be birthed by a people who cannot accept the way things currently are, who cannot accept, who look at this nation. Look, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm going to end a little bit, okay? I, we have to be able to look at this nation and take responsibility for it. Okay, our grandparents and our grandparents' generation, I know that, you know, your grandparents probably lived in Korea or China or somewhere else. Okay. But our grandparents as Americans, okay, 90% church attendance, something like that. In our generation, it's down below 20%. In our state, they don't even let us vote for Republicans anymore. On our primary election, I had the choice of voting for two Democrats. I only had pro-choice candidates to vote for. How is that possible in the state with the largest, most successful churches in the world? Give me a break. It's because you're not successful. Your size does not mean success. Saddleback. I'm serious. All these mega churches in this region, 
I thank God for the good things they're doing because they are doing many good things. But you're not being the light of the state of California. How can you make a claim to that? Our state is the most God-hating, child-murdering state in the union. Here we are. And we're so powerless that we have no ability to mount any kind of effective attack on this thing, despite the fact that what percentage of California is made up of Christians? It's got to be like 10%. It's got to be 10%. It's got to be 10% of this state goes to church. Where, where is the leadership in this hour? I say this lovingly. Oh, let it be you guys. Oh, let it be you guys. I'm praying that it would be me in this next generation. But I pray more that it would be you guys. That God would raise you up to not be a powerless, apathetic believer who's happy just to get a nice salary and go to heaven. God forbid that you miss out on your opportunity for true purpose in this life. God forbid you think that your purpose is just to get a great, a better promotion and a wife and some nice kids like anybody else can get. You have no sense of purpose. No. God forbid. Oh, that we would have a church that would be so in tune with the Spirit of the Lord and what his priorities are that they would give their lives to seeing a move of God birthed in the state. That's what we need, and that's what our forefathers did. That's what Frank Bartleman did, if you read the stories of Frank Bartleman. That's what William Seymour did, if you read the stories. That's what Lonnie Frisbee and Mario Murillo did. And there's so many heroes of our past did right here in our state. That's what Chuck Smith did at Calvary Chapel. Peter Wagner. We have so many amazing leaders here in the church. And yet, where is the courage of the church in this age? I say this lovingly. It's got to be us. Worship team, come on up. I want us to stand to our feet right now. Everything I say to you is my opinion. It's my opinion of the scripture. It's my opinion of the church. You are free to disagree. But if you disagree, you show me your scriptures. I lovingly challenge you. Some of you guys just been sitting in the back, criticizing in your hearts. You show me your scriptures. If you know how church should be run, you show me your theories. And if, you, and if, if your argument is great, thank God. I would love, I would love for somebody to correct an area of my theology. I think that would be wonderful. That would be amazing. But I say this, church. Wrestle with the things that I've taught you. I give you permission to wrestle with them. Search the scriptures and see if they're true. See if there are other interpretations that make better logical sense. I challenge you. See if there are other ways to prioritize our living. Maybe you think that living for revival is a fool's errand. 
That's fine. Show me your scriptures. Show me where you think the Bible puts the emphasis. But if you have nothing, then I challenge you in Jesus' name to consider the things that I'm saying and to take these things seriously. Because I've been faithful to warn a time is coming when Jesus will judge the entire earth. Every single person will pass before his judgment seat. A lot of Christians are so worried because they engage in shameful sins. I want to say this. I don't think that that's going to be the main thing that God's concerned about on the day of judgment. I really don't. I think many believers are caught in a trap of shame. And they're just thinking about the same set of sins over and over again. And you know what that does? You don't even see all the other ways that you're falling short. (laughs) You're so obsessed with this one sin, this eating disorder, or this lust issue. You don't realize you've been silent during the greatest holocaust of history. You don't realize you've been complacent in a time where we need heroes. I think God is raising up leaders outside the church because he can't find suitable leaders in the church. I think he's using Donald Trump because there's no one else in the body that can do what he can do. I think he's raising up Kanye West. There's a bankruptcy of courage in the church today. The church has become so bankrupt. Where are the bold ones that transformed the Roman Empire? Where are the bold ones that stood against the slaveholders? Where are the bold ones that challenged kings that stood before them and refused to recant? Where are the bold believers in this age? I lovingly challenge you, oh, that you would surrender your life to God so that he can use the hardships and the trials and the season of your life to grow you into something that matters. Oh, that your life would not be wasted doing what everybody else calls purpose. It's not purpose to be great at a video game. It's not purpose to be to have the highest GPA in your school. It's not purpose. None of those things will matter in eternity. It's not purpose to be popular. It's not purpose to sleep a lot. I don't know what else people do. Good gracious. None of these things are purpose. Come on. I challenge you in the name of Jesus, become great in your life. Don't settle for mediocrity. Don't settle for mediocrity. Whatever it takes. Don't settle for just showing up to church. I'm serious. Some of you guys are like, man, why do I even come out to church? I don't know why I come out every week. Get a vision for your life and go after it. Get a vision for your life. Don't waste your life. We have this one opportunity, these short 50, 60, 70 years. Some of us will have less. 
to make a difference in the nation. Some of you, God, will call to other nations. For God's sake, you better go. Doesn't matter if some elder says don't go. No, you follow the Spirit of God and you go where the Spirit of the Lord tells you to go. And if He tells you to stay here, then you seek revival for America. This is our calling. We must bring revival in this generation. We must bring revival in this generation. There must be a revival in America. If we do not see revival, there will be a great judgment. I call you in the name of Jesus to give your life for the purpose of seeing revival in America, for calling the nation to repentance. It's not enough to get a move of the Spirit and to get a lot of people saved. We need national repentance. We need national repentance on abortion. We need national repentance in our churches. There has to be a mass repentance for the idolatry of building large churches. We don't need large churches. We need large Christians. We don't need bigger buildings. We don't need nice carpet. That's garbage compared to mature believers. We must have mature believers in this age. They must fill up our fellowships. Right now, if you'll join me right now, let's just go into prayer. Would you pray with me? Let's contend right now that God would give us a white for revival. Then he turn back the tide. Turn back the depravity. Pray that you would be released in your destiny.